Uh, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to continue in that today. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and the message is titled, Jesus in Egypt. And where we're going, Matthew is going to demonstrate that the violence of Herod neither disrupts God's plans for the Messiah, nor does the violence of Herod occur outside of God's sovereign control. Now, today, there's a very important thing for us, and that is that we're going to resolve this morning, to some degree, uh, a problem called the problem of evil. And we're going to find that this problem is resolved under God's sovereign judgment and salvation through Jesus. But I have a question. You can just raise your hand. How many of you have been outside of the United States? You've been to a foreign country. Okay, all right. How many of you in your travels outside the United States have been to a foreign country where we'll say the customs was a little bit dicey, where it was just a little bit iffy getting in and out of the country? Okay, a few of y'all. How many of you have been in a dangerous situation outside of the U.S.? Okay, okay. How many of you have been in a dangerous situation outside the U.S. while on a mission trip? All right, several of you. Yes, several of you. All right, so I have a story, and this one is uh, my wife's dangerous outside the U.S. on a mission trip story, but it's a good one. It ends well. She's alive, so praise the Lord. Uh, she, she is still with us. So my wife and I have both been to Cuba on, on mission trips, and, and Cuba is a beautiful country. Um, to see Havana, to see the uh, beach at Matanzas Bay, it is just a beautiful place. And we had a wonderful time, but it really was, uh, for both of us, a journey of faith. Uh, When Megan went, it was her first mission trip outside of the U.S., and she did have to raise a lot of money, so that was, you know, her own issue with having to send some letters and asking for money, and there's some humility there, but it's a good thing as the body of Jesus works together to go on a mission trip. And and then she had some opposition. She had some people, because she was in college and nursing school, telling her that she was wasting her time on on a summer, you know, going outside of the U.S. on a mission trip when she should be doing things to help further her career. Uh, And then, of course, when she got there, the schedules, if you don't know, schedules on a mission trip are pointless. Like, you just throw the schedule out the window. Nothing happened according to to plan. It all kind of went out the window. And then it really was dangerous. She, she got individually questioned and kind of harassed a little bit in customs. But she encountered, I, I would say, something evil in Cuba. And that was on a day that she and a lady from the church went on a bus to go into town to get some building supplies while I and some of the men were working on building a, a toilet for this church um, she and the, the lady were surrounded on the bus by a group of witches. Uh, they're, they're known as the Santeria witches uh, in Havana, Cuba. And, and they came specifically to call down curses on, on Megan and, and on this other woman. And, and praise God, I think their effort failed. I think Jesus is stronger than the spirits they called to curse them. But they encountered something evil that day uh, on the mission trip. And it's, it's appropriate to consider these things because in the passage today, we're going to encounter something evil. And it doesn't do any good to pretend that what occurs in the passage is anything but evil. But it presents us with this 
tough question, and this is what we're going to wrestle with, and that, that is, if there is a God, and he is good, and he is powerful, then why is there evil? Especially the type that we're going to read about today. Now, just to re- recap briefly, so far in Matthew, he has presented to us the genealogy of Jesus, proving that Jesus is of the line of David and that he can trace his line back to Abraham. He has shown us that Jesus was born miraculously as God with us, born of the Virgin Mary. And then last week, we met this wicked King Herod, and we said he's a lot like a snake. He, he reminded us of the way that Satan slithered up to Eve in the garden with his hissing over this prophesied king. And today, we're going to see Herod as a snake, not just hiss, but strike. And I hope that along the way, you'll be convinced that Herod neither disrupts God's plans, nor does he act outside of God's sovereign control. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. God's Word says this, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. God, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord Jesus, I ask, please, that you use this for the intention with which you graciously gave it, to give us hearts to worship you. Make us through and through those who treasure you most, who adore you, who follow you by making you the center and Lord of our lives. Jesus, we would have to bow before you. We would have to surrender. We would have to ask your forgiveness in order to literally be following you as Lord. And I pray that you do that in us. I pray that you use this text to change us and to make us indeed followers of Christ. I ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
So first in this passage, we see in verses 13 to 18, the strike of the enemy. Excuse me. After the wise men had been sovereignly led by the star to Jesus, they were additionally led sovereignly, we saw last week, by this dream that all of them had telling them not to go back to Herod. And so they left by an alternate route. And we noted how God was sovereign in his guiding away from Herod because Herod had these wicked intentions. He did not mean to really worship Jesus, but something far more insidious. And we see now that God continues to sovereignly guide, to protect his son, to preserve Jesus to fulfill the mission for which he came. Look look at the text in verse 13. It says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and this was to guide him from Bethlehem to Egypt. And then look down in verse 19. It says that an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, and this was to guide him from Egypt to Israel. And then look in verse 22, it says, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew, and this was to guide him not just to Israel, but to Nazareth, where he would be safe from King Herod's son, Archelaus. And if you remember, back in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph also had to be sovereignly guided. This is what it said in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He had to be guided to marry Mary, since at the time it appeared that she had been unfaithful to him. Four times God spoke to Joseph in a dream to protect his son and to bring about the salvation of God's people through Jesus. Now, now just, just think about this. This is very meticulous sovereignty and it's awesome He's, he's so involved. He's not the God of the deists that just kind of winds up the clock, sets the work in motion, steps away and says, good luck guys, figure it out. He is so intimately involved making sure that things happen just the way he promised they would. And I'm convinced that these particular guidances very much still can happen today. Yes, I'm convinced people can be visited by angels or get a message from God. But here's the warning. Some of you may be the type where you need to hear, yes, these happen. Don't discount the fact that God is still meticulously at work for the salvation of his people. But some of you need to hear the warning that says, he will never guide you in such a way that goes against his revealed word. And, and here's the trouble, right? We, we get these impressions, we get these inklings, or, or we feel something really powerfully and say, well, that must be guidance from God. I, I've heard it with young men. Well, well, I just know that God wants me to marry that girl. Okay, well, tell me about her. Is she a Christian? Well, no. Well, does she even consider going to church? Well, no. Well, then how do you know it's from God? Well, because I know God told me. I think your hormones are speaking louder than God here. I don't think you've heard necessarily a word from the Lord. The the point is, we very much can be guided meticulously by God, but it will never go against what he has objectively revealed in his word. So if you think, well, I think I've gotten some guidance from the word. Hey, hey, Allow scripture to check you 
And that's a really good time to ask some trusted Christian friends, hey, this is what I think God's guiding me to do. What do you think? And if they love you and they know their Bibles too, they'll, they'll give you good counsel. And they'll know when to say this sounds like a good idea or no, I think something else is talking to you. I don't think it's the word of God. Uh, I think you can be guided, but under the guidance of Scripture. Now, not only does God sovereignly guide Joseph through angelic appearances and dreams, but he guides in such a way that his word is fulfilled. He ensures that none of his promises fail. Look in verse 15. Matthew wants us to know that this trip to Egypt is to fulfill prophecy. He says that it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, he's quoting there from the prophet Hosea. And you may not know the prophecy of Hosea well. I had to go back and read Hosea 11 to just be reminded. So here's what's going on in Hosea 11. The prophet is, is looking back at a time when God's people, the Israelites, were trapped in slavery in Egypt. And he's remembering how God worked in sovereign ways by protecting Moses, by, by raising Moses up in Pharaoh's own household, by sending Moses to say, hey, it's time to let God's people go, by sending these things called plagues, these judgments against Egypt for refusing to listen to God, and then ultimately by parting the Red Sea and bringing Israel out so that they could be free to worship God. That's what Hosea is prophesying about. He's not necessarily predicting the future. He's reminding God's people that God has rescued them before and he can do it again. And so why is it, think for just a minute, why is it that Matthew says when Hosea was prophesying about what God did to ancient Israel, that that applies to Jesus? In other words, Hosea is not making this kind of prophetic foretelling. Uh, one day, Jesus is going to be called out of Egypt. That's not exactly what was going on with Hosea. He was just singing and, and, and reminding the people that God had rescued Israel out of Egypt. And so something really cool is going on here. Matthew is helping us to see that God, in his sovereign love and control, arranged even the events of the Old Testament to prepare us for, Je for Jesus. Why, why would Israel be 400 years in Egyptian slavery? Why would Pharaoh try to wipe out Israel by having the babies killed? Why would God raise up Moses? Why would God send these plagues? Why would God meticulously and sovereignly bring his people out of Egypt? all to prepare us for Jesus. The events themselves are prophecies to show us how good Jesus is that when Jesus arrives, we go, hey, wait a minute. Something similar happened before. Something like this has already happened and now I think I'm seeing it come to a greater fulfillment in Jesus. You see, what Matthew wants us to start to think is, hey, hey, Jesus is a lot like ancient Israel, but he goes beyond it. It gets even better. And, and so think of these similarities between Jesus and Israel. You know, Israel is God's people and Jesus is going to be God's son. 
Israel was in bondage in Egypt and Jesus is going to go to Egypt, but he's not going to be trapped there. Israel, we're going to see, comes out by going through the Red Sea. And in a few weeks, we'll see Jesus pass through the waters at his baptism. Israel is going to have 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus, right after his baptism, is going to go have 40 days in the wilderness. But where Israel fails, when they're in the wilderness, Jesus is going to succeed. You see, it's all set up intentionally to show us that even the history points us to Jesus, who is the true Israelite. He, he's the new Israel, come to usher in the time when God will be with his people forever. It's all intentional. It's all to point to Jesus. Okay, so we've got these cool things going on, but now we get to the problem. Yep, Jesus is, is safe in Egypt, but that wicked King Herod... He's so upset, so annoyed, so aggravated. I mean, I mean, we can just imagine what's going through Herod's mind when he realizes that the wise men trick him. That they somehow figured out. He doesn't know who told him. He doesn't know how they figured out his plans. He thought he had fooled him, saying that he wanted to worship Jesus. But he, he was tricked. And so he, he has this problem. He thinks there's this king in Bethlehem and he knows based on what he learned from the wise men that this king would be about a year old or so and, and, and he wants to kill him but he doesn't know who he is and so Herod reasons something like this well Bethlehem's a small town there couldn't be too many boys there and 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 just to make sure what if what if I said that the king was no more than two years old I bet there's only maybe 20 or so boys in Bethlehem. And, and after all, I'm Herod the Great. If, if anything, my reign has been good for the people of Judea. I, I think that, that I am the king they need. I have built them the temple. So wouldn't it be prudent for a few little boys to suffer to preserve such a great nation that I've built? That's what I'll do. I can handle this king, this Messiah, with a few soldiers and a word. And that's what he does. He sends out some soldiers, probably 20 or so boys, and just imagine this scene. And, and kids, I'm sorry, that sometimes the Bible is scary. Houses are, are knocked on, doors are pushed in, and little boys are dragged outside and executed, all because one king was wicked and paranoid. And Jeremiah apparently foretold this. Because Matthew cites this incredibly appropriate text in verse 17. Look back at it, Matthew 2. He says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. You see, there's something both evil and amazing going on here. And I don't want you to miss this. If you're the type that take notes, this is worth noting. It, it is this. The problem of evil is resolved at the cross and at the throne. The problem of evil is resolved at the cross 
and the throne. Herod committed an atrociously wicked act. He murdered innocent children from his own pride and paranoia. That's wrong. And, and, and the first thing I would say when we think about this problem is evil is real. It just doesn't do any good to pretend like there's not such thing as evil, like, like wickedness is not really that big of a deal. That, that is only wishful thinking. And, and Christian, don't fall for that. Evil is real. And Herod reminds us of that. But here's how the problem is classically presented. And maybe you've heard this before. God in the Bible is presented in two ways. He is presented as all powerful and he's presented as all good. But if evil exists, it is so supposed that that God can't exist. Because if God is all powerful, then he could do something about that evil. And if he's all good, then he would do something about that evil. So because evil exists, God could be all powerful, but he's not all good. Or he could be all good, but he's not all powerful. And because one of those two can't be true, it means the God of the Bible doesn't exist. There you have it. Evil cancels God. Now you might have heard this in a, a variety of ways. You might have heard someone say, well, hey, hey, I would believe in the God of the Bible, but why do bad things happen to good people? Or I, I would believe in the gospel, but you just don't know what God let happen to me. Or, or, or I would trust, but, but I just can't get there because of this tragedy that occurred, this evil thing that happened. What do we do with that? What do we say? We just scratch our heads and go, I wish I could help you? Hmm. I want to suggest to you that the first thing, if anybody ever comes to you in that light, is to show some compassion. If they'll let you put your arm around them, if they'll let you pray for them, acknowledge that evil has occurred where it has occurred. What Herod did was evil, and it does no good to say otherwise. But second, Look at our passage here, and, and there's some power in Scripture, even before we get to the full resolution to see that God is indeed all-powerful. You see, even though Herod intends to kill the Messiah, he fails. God sends one angel to tell one sleeping man, get up and go to Egypt, and it works, and the Messiah is saved. Apparently, God is more powerful than the evil that is pitted against Jesus. And then it gets even better, because we have these words, then was fulfilled. And, and so, wrap your minds around this. As evil as Herod was, he wasn't acting beyond God's sovereign control, because his very actions fulfilled Scripture. In other words, it wasn't like God was up there saying, oh no, I didn't think about this. I had no idea Herod could be so bad. What do I do now? Hundreds of years before Herod did anything, God had already prophesied what would occur. We get the same thing in the story of Job in the Old Testament. 
You see, Herod reminds us of this enemy behind all enemies named Satan. And what we see in the story of Job is that before Satan can do one wicked thing, he has to appear before God and ask permission before he can do anything. And so Satan is real. Evil is real. We might think of Satan like a rabid, snarling dog. But what we find in the Bible is that dog is on a leash and God is holding the leash and he only permits evil to go as far as he would allow. So who's all powerful? Not evil, not Satan. God is all powerful. And we see in this passage that God is all good, that he uses even evil to his own good ends. We have to look at Jeremiah a little bit to understand this. When Jeremiah gives this prophecy in Jeremiah 31, he's talking about in the time, the event that's going on, that's unfolding in his day. And if you don't know what's going on in Jeremiah's day, he was called to preach a hard message to a stubborn people. He was called to tell them, Israel, you must repent. Judah, you must repent. You must turn back to God and worship him instead of turning to your idols. But they didn't want to hear it. Over and over again, they rejected the words of this preacher until finally, God had had enough. And he did what he said he would do. He brought in punishment on his people. The Babylonians invaded Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. God's people were either slaughtered or they were exiled, taken all across the Babylonian empire. And that's what Jeremiah was preaching about. Ramah was the city where the surviving captives, they were uh, dispersed after Jerusalem had been captured. And, and if we read in Jeremiah 31, he has both this word that is difficult, but also this word of promise. Jeremiah chapter 31 says this in verses 15 to 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work, declares the, war, the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Did those in Judah experience evil? Yeah, you bet. The Babylonians invaded, they, they killed, they brutally conquered. Did God use this? Yes, God was in sovereign control using the Babylonians to discipline his people. Did evil have the last word? Not a chance, no way. So was God the author of evil? No, God was not evil, but in his goodness, he used even evil to accomplish his good ends. What are those ends? Well, eventually those ends come to a fulfillment. You see, when Jesus came, when Jesus arrived on the scene, we have the great 
end of all of the great and exciting prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who would do more, say, than just allow the Israelites to return to their hometown. He would be the one who really ends the exile and really will bring an end to evil. You see, the problem of evil, this thing of, well, evil cancels God, it it makes one big false assumption. And here's the false assumption. It's that this life is all there is. You live, you die, and that's it. And if that were true, we would have nothing to say when somebody says, well, why do bad things happen to good people? But if this life is not all there is, if there's something more beyond the veil that is death, if if there's something that happens after we die, then evil doesn't have the last word. And that's what we get in scripture. Jesus comes with one purpose, and this is our hope. He comes with the purpose of being salvation, of being the one who would save us from our sins. You see, according to the Bible, when we die, every single person, believer, non-believer, will stand before a white throne of judgment and have to give an account individually for his or her life. And every single person will deserve at that moment to be punished forever for our sin. That means that the end of evil, there will be justice. Herod will not have the last word. He died and he will face a final judgment and he will go where Satan and his demons go and that is into hell to suffer forever. Wickedness will be punished to the extent that it deserves and there is hope. Because you and I, at the end of the day, are just as wicked as Herod. I I, I had to face this fact David Platt pointed out to me. When I read this story, the last person I want to identify with in this story is Herod. I like thinking of myself as one of the wise men. Or at least maybe one of the servants who accompanied the wise men. Or maybe picturing myself as Joseph, helping my family as I listen to God. But in reality, naturally, we're all like Herod. We we are these who have claimed other things to worship. And when that's threatened, like a snake, we strike. And so all of us, no matter if you've done big sins or little, are in this predicament where apart from some kind of intervention, we deserve to stand before a throne of judgment and hear, "Uh uh-uh, you are not righteous enough to live with me forever. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus had to be preserved. That's why Jesus had to go to that cross. That's why Jesus had to rise from the dead. That's why Jesus had to ascend and why he'll return. It's to resolve this problem, not just of evil generally, but of my evil. You want to talk about a problem? It's not the evil out there, it's the evil in here. That's the problem that needs to be resolved and it's resolved at the cross and at the throne. Peter got it. Peter understood this so well that it's what he told the Jews after they had crucified Jesus. This is what he says to them in Acts chapter 3. The God of Abraham glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So you picture this. 
There's some women and some men weeping bitterly in Bethlehem. Their baby boys have just been killed. And Matthew refers to a prophecy that says, you're going to cry now, but one day you can stop your crying. And that doesn't make any sense unless those same children have a chance of being reunited with their parents forever. And that doesn't make sense unless there is hope after death, which there is in Jesus. Those same parents could come to a point where they trust in Jesus and have hope to see their children again beyond the grave. That's why Matthew could quote Jeremiah 31 and say, I've got some good news. Evil occurred, but God is still all good. Evil does not cancel out God. The problem of evil, even of my evil, is resolved in Jesus, in his cross and in his throne. So you may be the type this morning who came here, and that's a question that has kept you from God for years. Pastor, you just don't even know my story. You don't know the things that have been done to me. You don't know how bad it's gotten at times. I just can't believe in God, because if he were good, he would never allow those things to occur. Hey, 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 hear me here. I am sorry that those things occurred. I don't know you, but I, I do not doubt that some real pain has occurred. And I can affirm that what happened was evil, but it doesn't cancel out God. I know he's good, and I know he's more powerful than the evil you experienced. How do I know that? Because I know a God who loved us enough to die for my sins and yours on a cross. That's the God I know and that's the God who says, hey, trust me. And one day you will see that I was stronger than evil. Well, Christian, I want to wrap up this morning just briefly considering Joseph. This man, this legal father who decided to do something that was daring. We might even say heroic. What did Joseph decide to do through this whole story? Well, Joseph decided to obey. Joseph obeyed. And I want us to look at the cost of that obedience. Look with me back through this passage at Joseph. Joseph hears from the angel, hey, rise up and go because Herod's seeking his life. And so what does he do? He rises and goes. He hears, hey, don't go to Bethlehem because Archelaus is reigning there. So what does he do? He withdraws. He says, take the child of Nazareth. What does he do? He goes and he lives. You see, Joseph received the guidance, but he didn't just go, well, that was interesting. What a fascinating dream I had. You know, hey, hey Mary, get a hold of this. I had a really cool dream. And then he goes on about his day as if that was just a, a neat thing that occurred. You see, Joseph right away obeys. Even leaving that very night, it may be so that not only would he give Herod the slip, but nobody would have known where he went because he obeyed that very evening. I just love this. And this is, Christian, what we need to hear. The obedience of Joseph was costly and the cost 
was worth it. The obedience of Joseph was costly, but the cost was worth it. What did it cost him? Well, first it cost Joseph his reputation. Joseph decides to marry a girl who's already pregnant. And while you and I, praise God, know that she was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, apparently not everybody in Nazareth believed that story. Because when Jesus one day goes and preaches in Nazareth, we get from Luke chapter 4, they say, hey, why are we listening to him? Isn't this Joseph's son? And they don't mean that as a kind way of referring to him. They mean by that, this is that kid Born in scandal, born amidst sexual skin. He, he's the one, sin, excuse me, who, who Joseph must have had sex with Mary before they got married. And that's why they still got married. That scandal followed Joseph and then Jesus all of his life. You see, obeying God cost Joseph his reputation. But it also cost Joseph his stability. Picture this, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, Bethlehem to Egypt, Egypt to Bethlehem. Oh, oh, wait, back to Nazareth. I mean, this is not, I imagine, what Joseph meant when he went to Mary's father and said, I'll give your daughter a stable household. This is as unstable as it gets. There's no routine. There's no stable will. This is just one series of difficult moves after another. And it's not like they could just, you know, call U-Haul and pay for some help. I mean, this is, let's pack it up again, dear, and let's go for another hundred miles. You know, this is a very unstable life. Obeying God cost Joseph his stability. It also cost Joseph his finances. Catch this, Joseph is called a carpenter. That probably just means that he worked with his hands. He was a blue-collar guy. He, he was a construction worker. And in a day and age before Thumbtack and Angie's List, how you got work back then was on two things. It was on your reputation, and it was on you being in one place long enough to where people could find you. And so if he has a bad reputation, and he's moving around so much that nobody can find him, then his finances are going to be impacted. In fact, we know they were impacted. We know that Joseph raised Jesus in a poor home. How do we know that? Well, when this couple brings Jesus to the temple to fulfill the sacrifice required of a male being born, this is what they do. They bring two pigeons for the sacrifice. And if we look in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 8, this is what it says. If she cannot afford a lamb... Then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Apparently, Joseph was so poor, they couldn't even afford a lamb when they went to sacrifice at the temple for Jesus. All they could afford to buy were two birds. This clearly cost Joseph at the bottom line and his finances, making it probably harder for him to find work to provide for his family. Obeying God cost Joseph financially. And finally, it cost Joseph his safety. This all would be bad enough if it was just a matter of hitting his finances. But, I mean, kids, did you hear this? Right? Um, there was a man trying to kill Jesus. He sent soldiers out to kill him. And Joseph had to listen to an angel and pack up his family at night and run for their lives. And they escaped 
Herod. I mean, they lived their life as a fugitive. Even years later, when they came back to Israel, they had to go into hiding, live in a secluded place, Nazareth, where they had been from in order to avoid this man hunting them down. You see, Joseph's obedience did not on the surface make things better. They made them harder. I mean, his, his reputation, his stability, his finances, and his safety. And what I'm telling you is, Joseph, one day, Lord willing, in heaven will tell us it was all worth it. It was all worth it. I, I mean, to be the one called to be the legal father of Jesus? Are you kidding me? Is it worth it? Absolutely it was worth it. Christian, when you agree to follow Jesus, that means you agree to obey Jesus. That means when he says go, you say, yes, sir. When he says, here's your duty, you say, all right. You're reporting for duty. He's giving you the orders and you're obeying. And he doesn't promise that obeying will make it easier. In fact, I can tell you, having walked with Jesus for more than 30 years, it'll probably make it harder. What's it going to cost you? It may cost you your reputation. I've heard this so many times. Somebody gives their life to Christ, and at least one friend is going to think you've gone nuts. You drank the Kool-Aid that somebody convinced you of something and now you won't have any fun with them. Now you just are, are in that Jesus crowd and you won't do the same things you did anymore. It could cost you your stability. You sign up to tell a lost world that Jesus died to save them. That is unstable. That means building relationships. That means loving people who are different than you. That means having compassion and having your schedule interrupted. And let me tell you, it's wonderful, but that's what you're signing up for. It may cost you your finances. When you agree to follow Jesus, you agree to give sacrificially to your local church, this kingdom outpost. And let me pause here and say something neat about this church. The last two weeks, we gave you an opportunity to love on a family here in this area. And this church raised $278 for a family. And uh, Brother Chuck and I got to go give this money this week to this family. And uh, when I gave it to the mom, she starts crying. And she, and she puts her arms around me and just says, thank you. She says, we're behind on paying our JEA bill. And you're never going to guess what the bill is. The bill is $258. And so your gift of $278 covers it. And now we got just a little extra. And we said, praise the Lord. We had no idea that they were behind on this. And, and, and through it all, we, we even got partnered up with a group called Jesus Fully Involved or JW3. And this group of Christian firefighters just blessed the socks off this family, giving beds and furniture. And, and it was just wonderful to see. Praise God, when you sign up to be a Christian, you're signing up to obey Jesus and it's gonna cost you financially and it's worth it. And last, it's gonna cost you your safety. You see, again, God does not promise that if you trust and obey Jesus, no bad thing will ever happen to you. It's just not in there. You will probably, at some point in your life, if you're faithful to Jesus, be in physical danger for following him. And it's worth it. It's worth it. When I went on my trip to Cuba, I got off to a very rocky start. 
I was in customs and I had this big duffel bag full of stuff to give to the local Christians. And um, I, I didn't ask too many questions about what was in the duffel bag. Retrospect, probably should have asked more questions. You know, because if you get stopped in customs and you don't know what's in your bag, that looks bad. Um, uh, and, and then, retrospect, I probably should have learned some Spanish before going to a Spanish country. I didn't know a single word of Spanish other than what this, this phrase. I knew, uh, lo siento, no hablo español, Inglés, por favor. That was the three things I had learned, which if you know your Spanish, that means I'm sorry. I don't speak Spanish. English, please. That's all I got. Uh, maybe uh, donde está el baño. That, that was the other thing that I knew was important. So I'm in customs, and they pick up my bag, and this short little Cuban guy, he, he says, blah, 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 blah. and I don't know what he says, but my buddy with me speaks Spanish, and he says he wants to know whose bag is that. And I said, oh yeah, that's mine. And he, he says, you come with me. And so he takes me into this interrogation room. And I, I just thought this was going to be, you know, a quick deal. Yes, that's my bag. All things are good. In this interrogation room, I should have known something was up because there were two armed guards, you know, both holding submachine guns in this room. And, and again, I'm just kind of this happy-go-lucky college student who agreed to go to this country. I didn't know exactly what I was signing up for. And this short little Cuban guy starts questioning me. Now remember, I don't understand any Spanish, so all I hear is, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, bag, 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 I got nothing. I don't know what he's saying, I don't know how to respond to him, so I just kind of repeat my phrase, lo siento, no hablo español, inglés por favor. And he gets madder and madder and madder, little faces getting all red, and, and I'm just, lo siento, no hablo español, inglés por favor. And so finally he points at one of the soldiers, and the soldier takes his machine gun off of his shoulder and he sticks the barrel of the gun right in my face and shouts at me and points at the bag. And honestly, here's what goes through my mind at that point. I, I kind of smile a little bit and I said, man, I should have taken Spanish in high school instead of French. <laughs> I don't have a clue what this guy's saying. I think this is a misunderstanding. I don't know what's going on. And I say, here I am, Jesus. I'm going to come and meet you because I took French in high school. And you know it. I did it because there were cute girls in there. That was the only reason. Here it is. Well, he called my buddy in and, and my buddy basically says, hey, this is, this is for a church. He's not selling this. The guy got mad and called the, the third uh, person in our party in, got mad at her as well. And then the, the angry officer leaves the room. And while he's gone, the, the guard kind of looks both ways and he opens up a side door and he says, go. And all three of us got our bags and we left. And, and God, God preserved us that day from whatever was going down. Um, I share all that just to say, I don't know if God's calling you to Cuba to have a machine gun shoved in your face, but, but I do know this, it's not getting easier to be a faithful Christian, even in the United States of America. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to obey Jesus. If you're going to obey Jesus, things are getting a little bit dicier, even here. And I'm calling on you not to compromise, not to compromise, even if it means giving up your safety. If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, I'm calling on you to keep walking with him. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep going to church. Keep giving financially to this kingdom outpost. Keep telling your lost neighbors, your family members about Jesus, even if it costs you. Because in the end, it's worth it. Guys, he's coming back. He's going to return. All of this stuff is going to go away. He's going to give us an eternal inheritance. We're going to be with him forever. 
We're not going to be worried anymore about the things the world worries about. It's going to be worth it. Let's follow him no matter what it costs. I'm going to pray and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as I pray, prepare your heart. But if you are here and, and you know that you need an opportunity to give your life to Jesus, just come find me after the service. I promise you, you're not interrupting me. It'd be the best thing. If you came here with a Christian friend, just ask them. Say, hey, what do I got to do to become a Christian, to actually trust them? Just ask them. It will be a wonderful conversation. I also, if there's somebody who says, you know what, I want to join this church. I want to be part of this church. Come find me. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. But we're going to conclude this service by celebrating the Lord's Supper. So let's pray and give this time over to the Lord. Father God, I love you, Jesus. I'm so grateful for your word. I'm, I'm grateful, Jesus, that you give it to us like it is and that you came amidst all the danger and, and that you thwarted evil and that you, you deal with it at the cross and at that throne, you're gonna deal with it forever and that you deal with my evil and that you make it to where I can be forgiven and that you call me to a life of faith-fueled obedience and that, it, that obedience is worth it. I just, I thank you. And Jesus, you know me. <laughs> You know I fall so far short. You know that I don't obey all the time. Jesus, we're gonna enter this time of remembering and I'm convicted. I, I, I pray that you would forgive me once again for falling short and for disobeying. And I trust that that forgiveness is there for me. That the same blood that covered my sins in the past are still gonna cover all the sins I commit. Jesus, you are still my Savior that I need. And I pray right now, God, that you do a work on our hearts to prepare us for this time. Let this be a celebration, a, a holy celebration, remembering of how much obeying your Father cost you. Jesus, I'm picturing you on the cross right now. And I know you paid far more than I ever will, that I could be forgiven I could be free, that I could be redeemed. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for kicking evils behind. And thank you, Jesus, that you're going to come back. Would you, Holy Spirit, help us to remember well and walk well until you do. I says, Jesus, please, in your name. Amen.